Welcome to the Link Adelaide podcast. My name is Steve Moylan, and today I've got someone from the 2015 Adelaide Festival of Arts. And I'm do- joined on the line by David Chisholm, whose experiment is part of the 2015 Adelaide Festival. Uh, how are you doing, David? I'm doing really well, Stephen. I'm getting very excited about heading across to Adelaide to present. Yeah, because uh, I think you've just uh, done it as part of the Sydney Festival and uh, bring it over now to Adelaide for the LA Festival. Yeah, we had our premiere season in, um, in Sydney Festival at Carriageworks, um, but we're really excited. I mean, it's the great thing about being able to have a, a few seasons is you can actually, particularly with new work, you get to have a, a proper look at it, put it in front of people, and then adjust if need be uh, around the things that you kind of want to, yeah, the, the places you want to tweak, or you just go, yeah, we love it, and that's what the show is. Mm. <laughs> and it's, it's quite quite a deep kind of almost difficult work to look at. It's sort of based around a short monologue written by uh, Mark Ravenhill about... Uh, well, do you want to tell me what it's about? Well, yeah, look, it's, it's interesting. I think some of the copy, uh, I feel, maybe misleads, but um, it's basically a, it's a work about ethics um, in on one level, but um, it's actually just a, um, a bit of... Uh, a great kind of queer Fantasia writing on, on the Grand Guignol kind of horror tradition of theatre, which is where I picked up um, the piece. I, I saw it in London in 2009 with Mark performing it himself. And I, yeah, I was just really struck by how kind of clever, it's really post-structuralist work, which sounds very academic, but it's just this thing about it isn't, it's not really about narrative or, or storytelling. It's really about the way that we forget to tell stories or the way that we revise stories. So it's a very open-ended work. It doesn't really have a, a neat kind of like... It, it, it alludes to being a narrative, but it's not really a narrative work. And that's kind of one of the reasons I really liked uh, the, the chance to be able to adapt it for music, because music, once you add uh, music into the equation, even with spoken word and music, you get into very, very strange sort of territory. And so I immediately thought it would be really interesting to preserve the text uh, and set it in the way that um, Richard Strauss had set the Tennyson poem Enoch Arden. Uh, it's a very strange and very, very rarely kind of um, explored genre, or, or I should say, form of called musical monodrama that goes all the way back to Rousseau. So it's a very weird subgenre of music. Uh, it's a very kind of queer fantasia um, in a kind of post, uh, yeah, uh, a post-AIDS sort of um, world. And I, I don't know, I, I, I'm really proud of it. I, I really like the work. I think it speaks, I think it's confronting for some people, but I, I don't see the confrontation personally because we're so close to it. And mm. I, all I see is, is the exploration and the possibilities of what, you know, in the same way that Rousseau, when he created Pygmalion, was looking for, finding a space between theatre and opera, you know, mm. that involves uh, spoken word and, and uh, music. And so I, I guess part of what you're, what you're talking about with finding music and re-evaluating and like you're looking at ethics through the through the script talks a lot about ethics and I suppose a lot of the changing kind of you don't know which way. Um, well, yeah, look, I mean, interestingly, how he developed the original work was he, he put an essay, I think, uh, by Peter Singer on, on animal rights um, to a bunch of uh, acting students at Lambda and Liverpool and in many ways, um, and, and kind of collated a lot of their responses and car- and shaped it into uh, a monologue. Um, and what's great about the, the effect when one person speaks 
the text is that it does fragment into into revised memories or different perspectives and opinions that are often contradictory and very sort of confusing. Mm. If you look, if you're looking for a direct narrative, um, but see, I like that kind of work that doesn't. I like I like work that tend to abstract things rather than kind of root them in very prosaic exact meanings, um, because I kind of think that poetic space is one of the few spaces left available where you can really argue more complex. Uh, you can argue argue in more complex ways uh, aesthetically. And it's really important, like when you're thinking about different kind of kinds of discussions, to think of them in shades of grey rather than black and white, too. And well, precisely, yeah. I mean, my, the most interesting, um, my most interesting response to some of the critical responses to the work has been the fact that um, everyone, mostly, I'd say, like eighty percent of the people who who critique the work, found it really challenging that the narrative was somehow lost in the way that it was set. But the reality is the narrative is not really there at all. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? So it's kind of like, the, I mean, that's the thing. That's the great thing about um, critiques is you just have to take them and go, okay, sure. Uh, that's, that's, um, that's what it is. That's what it is. And um, we were able to kind of look back at the work as we kind of created it. Um, and certainly, I guess there's also a big difference between that when you open a show for the first time and by the time you close the season. Mm-hmm. And by the time we finished the Sydney season, I think it was in a... I looked at it and I just said, you know, I really like the work. I actually think it's really, really strong. I think it's really different. It is a very dark and bleak kind of picture. But, you know, I mean, going to a theatre or going to a gallery or, or engaging with art and culture isn't always about being entertained or sometimes it's about being provoked and sometimes it's about being challenged. Um, and some things so don't yeah. have... You know, strict narrative structure either. Like if you go and if you go yeah. into a dance work, like particularly contemporary dance work, and you walk in and you sit down and you expect a narrative structure with a beginning, a middle, and an end, you're going to be horribly confused and terribly disappointed. Absolutely, and, and I think I think this work has become um, challenging for people um, because they they tend to see it through the lens of being a work of theatre, whereas I, you know, there is no actual director on the project. There's a, it's, le- it's led by a composer. Ostensibly, it's a work of music that has theatrical elements in it. Um, but it's amazing how how um, viewing habits uh, are, can be really quite strong in, in people. Um, uh, you know, if, if there's someone with music and they're speaking, then suddenly it's theatre. It's like, well, no, there's a there's a reason for choosing a particular performer to speak. Um, and and setting it within a you know it actually couldn't be done necessarily by an actor without extensive training because the the musical cueing within the work is really detailed mm. it's really it's set it's spoken but it's nonetheless set um, um, in a very sort of fixed way obviously um, we've had a, we've had polarized responses to the work interestingly we've had far more positive uh, responses from audiences. Um, that have seen the work than necessarily from the, the than the critical responses sort of uh, <laughs> demonstrate, and I find that really fascinating because I kind of go, well, ultimately, who are we making work for? We're kind of making work for audiences, um, so that's buoyed me. It's been a really interesting experience thus far. Yeah, I also think it's going to be really interesting to be uh, in a city like Adelaide, where I think um, the idea of digging deeper into things isn't maybe as problematic. You know, I think people are prepared to kind of look under the surface a lot more. They are looking for sort of new ways or or they can understand frames that sit outside. And I think that's in, in a big part one of the great legacies of the festival itself is it's actually it's created a culture for the people of Adelaide and South Australia 
whereby you go, oh, yeah, sure. The Mahabharata, yeah, it goes all night. Great, we're going to see it. You know, <laughs> like challenging the very kind of form and mm. content of, of which, um, you know, uh, um, by which art can kind of be created. So and things like, sense, like, like last year we had the... Um, the Shakespeare, the uh, Roman yeah. tragedies that went for hours and was a completely new kind of theatrical experience where people were sitting on stage and it was just totally flipped around where a traditionalist would absolutely uh, hate it, potentially, so that yeah. it's not Shakespearean, Victorian frocks and that kind of thing. But it yeah, was one of I the think... absolute standouts last year at the festival that people were raving about afterwards and I think Adelaide's really yeah. up for that kind of adventure, during, especially during a festival. Especially during the festival, I couldn't agree more. And for me, I'm, I'm just hopeful that there's people with an appetite. Like I sort of said, I look and I, I look and I go, yeah, that's the kind of work that I ultimately like. I really like it. I think it's great, and mm. I, I'm really happy with it. And I, it's not for everyone, but then what is? <laughs> you yeah. know, like I don't know anyone that agrees on. You know, there's not one single artist, even the most popular of popular artists, that appeals to everybody. Um, and I certainly think by the end of Sydney, we found we found our audience. We, mm. we had really great responses from the, the final couple of audiences because people start to talk and go, "Oh, this is oh, you'll really like this." And so yeah, no, it's been, um, it's been a very interesting journey for me. But I, as I said, I'm really excited to bring it to Adelaide. It's going to be a lot of fun. Awesome. And now I think you sort of you sort of touched on it a little bit. I'm really interested interested to know how you as a composer look at look at this text and then go, this is how and this is kind of the, the kind of music that I need to put to it. And how does that kind of process work? You were talking about also, you know, structuring the text for the performer as well. So with lots of cues yeah, and no, things true. like that. Look, on, on a larger formal level, I pretty much adhered to the structures that Mark had in place when he wrote the text. So the work divided into four uneven sections with a very, very long, extensive front end, a shorter second end, and then slowly the, the work gets shorter and shorter. Um, so I, the idea of the, the, the narrator um, and the text itself disappearing uh, on a formal level really struck me um, on first reading of the work, as opposed to first listening, because when he delivered it as a monologue, it was just, you know, it was a 20-minute uh, chunk of text spoken, you don't get the same sort of distinction. Um, but when you look at it on paper, you see, well, there are some deliberate chapter decisions the way that he's built, you know, he's built chapters into the way that he's written the work. Mm. So um, going back to the Rousseau uh, original, the, the Pygmalion, the idea of musical monodrama was to have a, have a place where poetic text was spoken with or without music, but that was um, interspersed with musical interludes. But that became, again, just through the kind of research I was doing into the, the weirdness of the genre, I went, well, I, I want to, if I'm going to work with the genre, I want to sort of, I want to respond to some of the original impulses behind the person that created it in the 1700s. And so I inserted a series of um, chapter breaks, so musical interludes, and because we were working with uh, French video and artist and painter, um, working also alongside our production designer, Matt Gingold, we all decided that you know there should be there should be video episodes as well, and that across the course of the work there you know it's a very in that sense it's a very classical work. There are nine movements um, uh, within it. Some are with you know, music with spoken text. Some are pure music. Some are uh, video with sound. So it really you know it, that was a sort of formal approach to it. Then on I guess on an individual movement basis I 
we worked with Jude Anderson, who's a really amazing dramaturg, who wasn't aware of the process that Mark had gone through in terms of working with multiple voices. I mean, it comes through in the text anyway, you know, being able to kind of collate, compile different voices and perspectives on, on one subject. Um, again, uh, a sort of post-structural fantasia of text. Um, uh, we, I was able to sort of break it down and sort of say, how far do we want to pull this apart? And Jude had identified six or seven different characters within the one voice. And so it really struck this idea that what we're looking at as a central character is actually a, a decented character, someone who's struggling to remember in a sort of post-traumatic environment. But none of us wanted to kind of prescribe too much melodrama into the work. Mm. So we wanted it all, all to be delivered in a very sort of post-dramatic way where, um, because I think particularly dealing with technology um, as a kind of core backbone to the work, we wanted to make a kind of broad comment, a very subtle one, and perhaps we, we found out it's actually a little bit too subtle, about the way that technology can desensitise us and how the most horrific things can become actually quite flat and quite quite quotidian, quite day-to-day. You know, day day. Mm. Like, oh, yeah, people just got their heads cut off. Oh, yeah, and then I went down to the shops, and then this happened, and oh, and then these 200 girls got kidnapped. Oh, yeah, and then I went to the pool. This way that technology can weave information into us in a way that makes renders us inactive rather than activates us to kind of to mobilise socially. And I think that's where Mark's text was really clever, and I think us adapting it into a very technology-heavy environment. It seems like the only choice we wanted to make a comment on the way that technology can desensitise um, and, and deactivate people, and that that essentially is the big horror of everything. You know, mm. <laughs> it's very, um, so yeah, it was maybe a little too clever. I don't know. I don't think so. I think Adelaide people are smart and they'll get it. <laughs> <laughs> and particularly if you walk into the theatre with the right kind of frame of mind, which is kind of the thing that I've learned overseeing theatre and seeing works over my lifetime is that you have you can't walk in there with any expectations because I find the works that I walk into expecting things or with yeah. any kind of preconceived notions if I walk in there I just I need to walk in just to be myself as much as possible and just walk it's in like and go you. I'm here to see something I don't know what I'm going to see and just let it happen and you know because you build things for an audience you don't build things to no one well, precisely, yeah. and um, and some things, uh, you know, um, I, I was uh, one of the reviews in real time talked about it being in totality quite elusive. But if you're trying to make elusive work, which we are, we're not trying to pin something down and go, it is this. Um, it is. It's about one sensation after the other in this work, and I agree with you. It's like going, like you said about dance, actually, going in there and expecting something from it is one of the biggest problems. I, I much prefer going and saying, I don't know quite what it is that I'm going to go and see, but I'm, you know, I, I try and let the work explain itself. Mm. It's, it's, one of the, it's one of the challenges. I mean, God, thank God I'm not a critic. I would hate to be a critic. It would be an awful job. Awful. <laughs> I think because you end up seeing a whole lot more stuff than other people as well. That's the other thing. So yeah. you, you forget that, um, you know, audiences don't necessarily view it with the same breadth of exposure to work that you would necessarily have. Mm. Um, and it may not be fresh to you, but to a lot of the audiences, you know, a, a work can be surprisingly fresh that you think is actually overly familiar just because you've seen a hundred different versions of it. So anyway, it's, um, yeah, it's, I seem to be obsessing about critics. It's, um, it, it, it does create an interesting dialogue, though, with the artist, you know, uh, 
artist and having a kind of very public critical response. Like you make it, it, it's, this project more than anything else I've done in my career has really shown me how delicate that line is between uh, pushing audiences and and, and yeah, it's, it's it's a very delicate line. It's been a very interesting experience. Um, I'm far more used to people going, oh, it's amazing, rather than going, oh, I don't know. It's like, oh, really? <laughs> Well, it's really interesting too to kind of have that have that discussion and have that like it comes down to that who you're making the work for thing mentioned at the beginning of the interview it's it's that kind yeah. of discussion you're making work so that audiences are moved like what like what's the actual reasoning behind what you're doing at the beginning um, yeah well precisely and for me it's always about making exciting things for the audience and uh, but also also at the same time making the kind of work that I'd like to see because I haven't seen it necessarily before yeah. And um, so it is. It's interesting when you get people, you, you, when you get pushback, and you know the, that you get a sense that oh, there's a few people out there who who don't like it, and you go oh well, did I fail in within the work itself because they didn't like it? Mm. And then I think you, ultimately you have to reconcile the fact of going well, no, because any work is any work is only an offer ultimately. Mm. Um, and as just as any critique is only just an offer back as well. So, yeah, I... Um, and it's I so subjective. Yeah, it's totally subjective. And I certainly feel like we made a lot of really clear and deliberate decisions with a, with a bunch of very informed artists. Mm. And I'm, I'm really happy with, with what we've kind of created. I think it honours the work really well in terms of the writing, which I, I just love because it's really inconclusive mm. and because it's really uncertain. I really I like the fact that it kind of isn't isn't an enlightenment work. I like that there's a lot of shadow in it and there's a lot of uncertainty. And for me, that sort of reflects the nature of ethics today, you know, mm. the, the nature of, of being alive. And have you had any, through the process of creating this, have you had any correspondence with Mark Ravenhill? Yeah, well, look, we, I've seen Mark quite a bit since then. Like, um, I'll, we caught up with him about seven, eight months before we went into production for this last year. Mm. Um, he's been really hands-off, which has been great, because for him it's like, well, he, he wrote the work um, in 2009. I saw it at the time, and he went, yep, yeah, sure, go for it. He's been super supportive, and, um, yeah, he, he's, he's holding his congratulations on getting it on. It's great. Um, so my my excitement is um, is its potential to be able to be in Europe where he can actually see it firsthand. But failing that, we'll be able to document it properly in Adelaide and and make sure that you know we have some form of um, something for him to see beyond um, people's varied responses to it. Um, I think he'll kind of like it because, as I said, it's a very it has a very queer aesthetic, mm. which again you don't you know queer is something that really never happened in Australia. It was very big in the kind of 90s in the UK. And then it sort of like metered out or became quite mainstream. But there was never really... Uh, I'm, I'm yet to see work on, on the main stage here that I would call truly queer and aesthetic. Um, that is, you know, that maintains a kind of loyalty to kind of an evasiveness of identity, which I, you know, as an artist and as a, as a queer identified artist, so I've, I've maintained that kind of practice because mine's... I guess my practice isn't necessarily based on any given fashion. It's based around the looking at the very nature of what identity is um, as a sort of, you know, as a kind of politicised, um, yeah, position. So, can, can you and, and interestingly, no, no one's really picked up on the fact that it's a really queer 
work and that clearly it's it's a work that's looking at you know the nature of of uh you know of hiv hiv identified sort of um uh, activist artist like mark is you know so um the fact that it looks at the idea of an incurable illness and no one anywhere has ever talked about hiv <laughs> no one's ever even mentioned it and never even mentioned kind of queer aesthetics so that in itself i think is quite telling can can you just like for those people that aren't really aware of what it is, can you sort of give me like just a quick potted one minute definition of what a queer aesthetic is? Well, for me, queer, queer aesthetic always sought to kind of challenge notions of uh, nominal notions about traditional gender hierarchy and sexual identity as and personal identity. The idea that sexuality doesn't necessarily define someone exclusively. So categories like gay or lesbian or transgender in themselves. Um, are too rigid, they're too categorical. And the idea of queer was to really invoke a sense of fluidity and identity, saying, yeah, um, you know, men who have sex with men or women who have sex with women or, you know, <laughs> ask Corey Bernardi, people who have sex with dogs. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so they, they, there's a fluidity and identity. But these people aren't defined by a single dimension of their character simply by who it is that they have intimate or sexual relationships with. And it was, it was intended to break down, you know, very, you know, the Foucault model of the, that he, he argued for, uh, he argued that the nuclear family was a construct of industrialization. Um, and I, you know, I, I was a big sort of Foucault student back in the day and still a big fan of his writing because what he provoked is an inquiry into the, the way that power systems and by power systems I include things like a nuclear family, the normalisation of heterosexuality, which is a prison in itself for people who who are forced to sort of necessarily hetero-identify but may have greater fluidity themselves mm. um, in terms of the, their sexual interests. Um, and so queer was a strategy that was launched, you know, by, in an inquiry to destabilise this idea of centralised identity. Um, and in some ways it was a mirror of a lot of the sort of um, fragmenting fragmenting, social fragmenting of the 60s and 70s that was sort of squashed down in the 80s with the rise of big business and and um, the resurgence of um, uber-capitalism in the 80s. Um, and in many ways, the 90s were about, you know, a, a reassertion from a different angle, a, a re-strategizing around the idea of challenging orthodoxy and challenging really fixed paradigms around identity and allowing people to... to to, to be freer, I guess, um, to not be stuck within social or like class structures, sexually identified structures, to basically just, you know, to actually, getting back to them again, to be, to be restored, to essentially challenge the basic social contracts, which none of us are necessarily, um, uh, you know, that we, that we're not, that we're born into, not necessarily that we are, um, you know, we're born, born as slaves. <laughs> born free but everywhere in chains <laughs> going back to Rousseau yet again so yeah that, that's why yeah I guess I hadn't thought about that connection before but I mean it is a fairly deep one ultimately it's about about not being boxed into a particular a, a particular way of being or, or being seen awesome well the experiment sounds absolutely undefinable and uh, one of those amazing kind of things you just have to go to and experience for yourself. Um, it's going to be the 2015 Adelaide Festival uh, on at the Space Theatre from the 11th to the 14th of March. Um, tickets on sale through BAS 131246 and online through the Adelaide Festival website adelaidefestival.com.au where you can also find more information 
Ajakan at linkadelaide.com.au. Uh, David Chisholm, it's been fascinating having a chat to you about the show. Um, oh, thanks, Stephen. Thanks for the time. That's right. I'm sure it's going to be received really well here in Adelaide and uh, everyone will get down and see it. Yeah, terrific. I, I'm really looking forward to being there. For more, visit linkadelaide.com.au. Check us out at facebook.com forward slash linkadelaide or tweet us at linkadelaide.